scriptures with you this morning, I want to encourage you to turn with me to Romans in chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. And then with the 1, add another one because it's 11. Gotcha. Sorry. <clears throat> Romans 11. Romans 11. There is an issue that um, when you come to faith in Christ, you realize that you're a sinner, that, that, you are, um, that the judgment of sin is hell, the wages of sin is hell, separation from God, that's death. That's the definition of death in the Bible. And you're all excited, you have all sorts of adrenaline. And you're, you're just cruising along, telling everyone you know, God has changed my life. It is astounding. And, and, uh, and you just, you're just a sponge with the word of God. You can't soak up enough. And then you sin. And you say, what, what happens now? Did I blow it? And what can I do about it? I mean, what happens next? Am I, am I done? In Romans chapter 11, it really answers that sort of question. I mean, the God who saved me, who forgave me of my sin through the uh, crucifixion of the Lord Jesus and his resurrection... Would God, the God who saved me, one day condemn me? See, that's what's at stake in our study here in the book of Romans when we're in chapters 9 through 11 talking about Israel. And the big question is, you know, Israel started out really great, you know? A family, Abraham and Sarah. And, and they, were, they believed God and God counted it to them as righteousness, and they trusted in him that God made big promises. He said to Abraham, I am going to make of you a great nation. I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to bless that nation. And anyone that blesses that nation, oh, I'm going to bless. But anyone that curses that nation, I'm going to curse. And through this nation, listen carefully, all of the families of the world would be blessed. Man, that's a big one, huh? A lot better than, you're getting a car for your 16th birthday. I mean, this is astounding that the God of creation would start a nation that his whole intent was to bless them, to bring them into living a certain way that he would be able to pour his blessing that the crops would grow in abundance, that they would be protected from their enemies, that there would be no stillbirths, no miscarriages. I mean, you go right down from the top of the list down to the everything is covered. Just follow me. Well, if you've read through the Old Testament, you will learn that it didn't take long for this nation to turn their back on God and say, let's just go another way. I mean, think of it. Seventy-five people of the family of Abraham went down into Egypt. 
and they were there for 430 years. And while they were there, they grew, and they grew, and they grew, and they grew, so much so that Pharaoh looked at these people as a danger. So he enslaved them, and he beat them, and he caused them to labor for him. And during that time, they grew into a nation of two and a half million people. You say, man, that's just a fairly decent-sized city. It was a mob of people. And God raised up a man named Moses and said, Moses, you're going to lead him out. And so he did. He said, I want you to go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. And he did this 10 different times. And each time, Pharaoh said, no, God would rain a plague on the, this, this nation of Egypt over and over again until Pharaoh said, just get out of here. Get out of my sight. And so they march, and they, they, they actually were commanded to go to all of their neighbors and ask for all of the, their jewelry and treasuries, and they were happy to give it. And thus they plundered the people who had enslaved them for 400 years. Amazing. And so God is going to bring them to a promised land, and this land would be rich, a perfect land. It wouldn't be like Egypt that had all of these rivers and all of the water. It would be fed by the waters of heaven, by rain. It was a rich, rich place. And as they were making their way there, God called Moses up onto the Mount Sinai and, and gave him the law and the covenants, the commandments by which Israel would live and enjoy the blessing of God. And while he was up there, Imagine this. People said, he's been gone too long. Where is he? And they came up with a plan. They said, everybody take some jewelry and throw it in a pile. And they made a calf out of gold. And they said, we'll make our own gods to lead us. Can you imagine the, how foolish that sounds? Let's make a god out of our own hands, and then let's follow it. And you know what God did in response to that? While Moses was yet still on the Mount Sinai, he said, stand back, Moses. This is a stiff-necked people. I'm going to destroy every last one of them and start over with you. That's some heavy stuff. Oh, wait a minute. If the God who made a covenant with these people was ready to destroy them, what hope do you and I have? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because here in Romans chapter 11, Paul lays out three reasons. Four reasons, I'm sorry, going to give you a bonus there, why Israel is not gone for good and either will you. Because... Number one, you look at Israel, this powerhouse. I mean, in their glory days with David as their king, his warrior, this worship leader, psalm writer. Where are they now? A scattered ragtag bunch scattered all over the earth. 
There is a movement of people going back, but even then, how can this small, small, small little nation make a difference? And what happened to all of that? God's blessing. And I mean, was that just Bible stuff? There was something else going on, my friends. You see, when Jesus, the Son of God, came, God had sent his Son. They turned him over to the Romans to have him crucified. Talk about treachery, friends. You want us to crucify this guy who says he's our blood be on our own heads. Crucify him. Jesus looked at these people and said, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And that's where we are now waiting for this nation of Israel to come to their senses. But in the meantime, there is a blindness. They know the word of God. They are called the people of the book, for heaven's sakes. I mean, the Bible you have on your table, on your lap, on your phone, two-thirds of it came out of the work God's working through this nation. There is a blindness. And Paul is answering, what's the deal with that? I mean, has God rejected Israel? I mean, is God just done with them? The answer is no. Notice verse 1. I ask then, Paul says, has God rejected his people? And he answers in the strongest way. He says, by no means. Now, that sounds kind of gentle for what the Greek says. Meganoito. He uses this often, and it means absolutely, positively, no way would God ever do that. Because if he rejected Israel, maybe he'd reject you, huh? Three reasons, four reasons. First, Israel's blindness, while it may seem total, is not. You see, God has not rejected his people. And the evidence Paul begins to lay out for us is this. He says, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. Well, clearly not all Jews are lost, are they? See, this blindness that's going on with them is, is only partial. It's not total. It's not complete. And that has been true since the very beginning. God has chosen before the foundation of the world those whom he will save. It is a doctrine that people wish never existed. It's hard to wrap your head around, but it's as simple as this. God is God and you are not. And God gets to make the choices that he wants for his will, for your good, and his glory. And so evidence piece number one was Paul. Look at me. This blindness is lifted for me. And you remember Paul, in his younger days, my friend, he was one persecuting the church. I mean, he was running around having Christians arrested and turned over to the authorities to be put in prison. And in his travels on the road to Emmaus, Acts chapter 9, he had a meeting with Jesus. Boom, suddenly he could see. 
Yeah. So Paul, evidence number one. Evidence number two, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. There's that word. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars and I am alone, left, and they seek my life. But what's God's reply to him? There was some serious stuff going on there, my friends. It's recorded in the Second Chronicles 36. And I want to read this to you because I think it's important enough to take the time. Second uh, Chronicles 36, 11. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he began to reign. During the time of the kings, the end of the kingdom. The kingdom had already been divided because of sin. A northern kingdom, a southern kingdom. Northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. But he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. And note here in verse 12, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord his God. He did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet who spoke from the mouth of the Lord. He also rebelled against the king Nebuchadnezzar who had made him swear by God. And he stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against turning to the Lord. Wouldn't do it, my friends. And all the officers of the priests and the people likewise were exceedingly unfaithful, following all the abominations of the nations. You know what some of those were? They sacrificed children to these gods, literally handed them into the arms of this idol that there was a fire and they would burn their children worshiping these idols. And constantly God would send his prophets one after another to call them to repentance from this foolish lifestyle. But it gets worse, my friends. They polluted the house of the Lord that he had made holy in Jerusalem. And the Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of God rose against his people, until there was no remedy. Therefore, he brought up against them, this is the Lord bringing up the king of the Chaldeans, who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on the young man or virgin, old man or aged. He gave them all into his hand. And so he raised up the Assyrians to go to Israel and take them into captivity, taking them from the very promised land that he had given to them. And then he raised up the Babylonians to the southern kingdom of Judah and dragged them off into captivity for 70 years. And later we see at the end here the reason for 70 years. You see, one of the instructions God had given to them was this concept of Sabbath. It's something we look at today and say, well, that seems kind of minor to, you know, take the day off, right? Except that also included the planting of crops. 
every seventh year, the Lord had said, let the land rest. Seventy years. Let's see. Every seventh year they skipped. 490 years they ignored the Lord. Patiently, he sent his prophets, his messengers to them, calling them to return, wooing them. But they would not. That's what Paul is talking about here, my friends. That's what Paul's talking about here, about Elijah's day. When he sent his prophets, they would not listen. But there's Elijah saying, I'm alone. No one is left. No one trusts in you. And the Lord says to him, well, I've kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed their knee to Baal. Again, one of the nation's idols. You see, there was a remnant, always a remnant. At no time did God ever choose everyone. Just never did. Remember Jesus' parable about the two roads? A broad road that led to destruction and a narrow road that led to life. Why are the roads the sizes that they are? Expected traffic. Expected traffic. And so here Paul is saying, I've trusted Christ, example one. There are Jews coming to faith. I'm one of them. Evidence was Elijah's day. Certainly there was this great rebellion of the people of God. But it wasn't a whole rebellion. God had reserved 7,000 men. But you know, it was also true in Paul's day. So too, verse 5, in present times, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. We use that word grace a lot. What are we talking about here? We're talking about God giving to us that which we do not deserve. It is the kid who got brand new clothes in this beautiful outfit and then runs out and plays in the mud. And when he comes back in, you give him a bike. Well, we told him not to go outside. That's what grace looks like, my friends. God's riches that clearly we don't deserve. So my friends, it is true for Paul and it is true for us this day. Not all Jews, not all Israel has come to faith in Christ, but some have. And so first and foremost, the, the Israel's blindness isn't total. There's always a remnant of believers. And only the elect are ever saved. That's ever, always ever the truth. Look at verse 7. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking, and the elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. True throughout history, my friend. Isaiah told about it in verse 8. As it was written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see. 
and ears that would not hear down to this very day. I have uh, two golden retrievers. They're wonderful dogs, and they communicate so well, I should have named them Reagan, you know? Um, I, I just, they look, and they, they look in my eyes and let me know they need something. And, and, and one of the ways that uh, I reward them is little tiny marshmallows. There's a line over here for people who, should, after the service, will tell me that I shouldn't give them marshmallows, okay? But I do anyway. <laughs> And uh, the other night I went out, it was like 10.30, one of the dogs was out, and I said, come on, Sparty, come on in, let's go get some of those marshmallows. And she looked at me and turned and walked away. Good dog, you say. That's what we're talking about here. People who will not see, people who will not hear, not interested. It's always been the case, my friend. And so God caused a blindness to come over them that they would not see. And David here in verse 9 in the psalm says, Let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. The picture of servanthood. Bending, working. Instead of being the boss, they were the slave. Hmm. Reason number two, my friend, is this. We know that God has not rejected Israel, thus will never reject those who put their faith in him. Is that because Israel's blindness was purposeful? God had a purpose in this. So I ask, Paul says here in verse 11, did they stumble in order that they might fall? And the word fall there has the feeling of and never getting back up again. By no means, there it is again, meganoito, absolutely not. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, there is a principle that God had for the nation of Israel and also for the church, and it is this. I pour my blessing into you as you are living well and trusting me and obeying me, so much so that other people wonder, what's going on over there? I need to get some of that. Part of the purpose of the church. Unfortunately, the world doesn't have this man, I need some of that attitude when you have these beyond explanation videos on YouTube or Facebook of churches dancing around, yelling and screaming, and you wonder what is going on with those people? Now, there's a time to dance, my friend. There's a time to listen and respond in worship. Hmm. And you know, that was supposed to also be personal as well. In your life, Jesus said, you're the light of the world. 
And that's, that's always been a difficult metaphor. What do you mean by light? What, what does light do, you know? And people have come up with, well, you know, it helps you see things in the dark. And, but you know, there's a better picture than that. And we'll see it here in just a moment. Because God also intended that for Israel. Israel was supposed to be the light. In Isaiah 49 and verse 6, this is what Isaiah said from the Lord to the nation of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. This blessing should have drawn other people in, not like the Jews did. Draw little lines of no Gentiles in this circle. You know, that's the court of the Gentiles. You people stay out there. You will never be one of us. Well, there's an attitude. There's an attitude. So no, my friends. He had a purpose. Salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel jealous. Look at verse 12. Now if their trespass means riches to the world, and if their failure means riches to the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Think of it, a rich church, not just the Jews, but people from all over the world. It will result in blessing. And my friend, part of the purpose is not just salvation coming to the Gentiles and a blessing to the Jews, but my friend, in verse 13, we notice Israel's reconciliation will mean reconciliation to the world. Now I am speaking to you Gentiles inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. The word Gentile simply means if you're not a Jew, okay? <laughs> Just to make that clear. He says, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous. She was on the other foot here. You see, the, the Jews were to make the Gentiles jealous. But now Paul says, the church ought to make the Jews jealous. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean? And my friend, this is laid out as a warning to the church. Notice in verse 16, if the dough offered as first fruits is holy, and we have these pictures here, so is the whole lump. If part of it's holy, it all is holy. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. And this introduces a picture of an olive tree. And the concept here is one of grafting. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive tree, olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember... It is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Now, this concept of grafting, anybody ever done that before? I've watched a couple of videos on it to learn what that's all about. But basically, if you cut off another branch, peel back some of the bark, and put little shoots from a different tree in, and you protect that, it will eventually start growing. And that's the picture here. 
the Gentiles are grafted in, so to speak, of this tree. And they are nourished from it. And the warning is this. You know, it's not you that's nourishing the tree. It's the tree that's nourishing you. So don't get arrogant about such a thing. Behold, we were grafted in. Get little t-shirts about that. <laughs> Cause confusion everywhere. So he says, don't become proud, but fear. But then you will say branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Well, that's true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. And that sounds very, very, but we're talking about discipline here. The issue is discipline. The saved will also always persevere, my friends. And by the way, that same branch that was broken off gets grafted back in again. And that's point number four here, my friend. Reason number four, why you can be absolutely assured that God will never forsake you. He didn't do it to Israel and he won't do it to you. Remember we talked about Jesus looking at the nation of Israel for the last time and saying to them, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Really what that would be is a faith statement. I recognize who you are and I put my trust in you. Remember when Jesus came, a lot of people did that. But as a nation, they never did. Again, the difference between the elect and the unelect. You see, here's reason number four. In verse 25, Israel's future salvation is certain. As a nation, they will indeed come to faith in Christ one day. And so here in verse 25, we see that this hardening, this blinding of Israel was, was for a certain season. It had a purpose, drawing the Gentiles in to salvation. So again, verse 25, lest you be wise in your own eyes, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. You say, what in the world is that? Well, the definition of this season is that it is a span of time involved in the completion of the body of Christ, the church, when the last Gentile or Jew is added to the church and all that God has chosen has come to be, then comes Israel. And when will that happen? It's going to happen at the rapture, my friends. When the church is removed... And verse 26, the salvation will take place at the return of Christ. And in this way, verse 26, why all Israel will be saved as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion and he will banish ungodliness from Jacob. Jacob, of course, was the son whose name was changed to Israel. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. 
as regards to the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but as regard to election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. And God keeps his promises. Please note verse 29. The gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. God does not change his mind. God does not renege on his promises. If God says it, he will do it. He will do it. For just as you were one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of this, their disobedience, so too they too have become disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you they also may reserve mercy. God fulfilling his promises to Israel. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. And then comes verses 33 to 36. Paul considering this great plan of salvation. God working in the midst of all of these things. And this is how he ends this passage. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? And who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things to whom be the glory forever. <coughs> Wrap it up, my friends. God will never reject those whom he has chosen. And how do you know if he has chosen you? Because you have come to faith in Jesus Christ. Because your eyes were open to the gospel. You heard, you understood, and you trusted in him. So my friends, how ought we to live in light of these complicated truths? We ought to be faithful because God is faithful. You need to keep your word even if the mood in which you promised has changed. Well, you know, I was really happy and excited about some things when I made, but I don't know about that anymore. But be a promise keeper, my friends. Keep your promises. And know this, that though Israel wasn't faithful, God was. God kept his promises. You ought to trust him, my friends. And be the light. Live the life and speak the words that draw others to faith in Christ. It's not just I'm going to try and be a good person and hope people come to faith in Christ. You ought to be a good person anyway. Be the kind of person that loves and cares. It looks out for other people, regardless of what they have done to you, for you, or otherwise. Because that's what Jesus did for you. Be the kind of person that displays Jesus and explains Jesus. And if you've sinned, and you know you have, confess it to God. You know what the word confess means? I know you've watched a lot of police. It means to admit it, right? That's pretty close. It means you come to an agreement with God about sin, that it is bad, that it is evil, that it is death. 
And then you ask forgiveness. And you know what? He will forgive you. You know why? Because he promised to. He promised to. And know this, if it weren't for the Lord's mercy, we would all perish. You know what mercy is? It's a little different than grace. Grace gives you something you don't deserve. Mercy withholds what you do, particularly in the area of judgment. And finally, hear me when I say this, friends. No matter how dark it gets, no matter how hard, know this, that God has not forgotten you, and he never will. 